The Athletic. The Champions League is back and to be fair so is the Europa League Man United fans which means there's no better time to sign up for all the unrivaled coverage at The Athletic. Right now new subscribers can get a half price annual subscription that works out less than £1 a week for an entire year. All you have to do is head to theathletic.com slash totally. But hurry, you've only got until the 25th of February. That's theathletic.com slash totally. Totally Football Show. Today, Mbappe beats Messi. PSG say mercy. Meanwhile, City show no mercy to Everton by the Mersey. And with Mourinho v Moisey coming up, the week is just Paul Merson away from being massive. Today's big show will cover the lot. Champions League, Premier League, what Hernan Crespo and Thierry Henry are getting up to, and much, much more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Well, hello there. It's Thursday, the 18th of February. And here to talk about what feels like a pretty exceptional midweek, we've got Tom Williams. Hello, Tom. Hello, James. Also on board, Duncan Alexander. Hello, James. Indeed. And Natalie Jedra of ESPN Brazil. Hola, James. Hola to you too, Natalie. And you, listener. And you. What about that midweek, eh? Did you enjoy it? Oh, yes. Big time. Yeah. It was very eventful, actually. Lots of interesting topics to talk about. But yeah, it's good to have Champions League back. I found myself in a, in a dichotomy, as usual, in midweek, um, because I think I'd finally got to the point where I was like, do you know what, there might be too much football on. And yet also angry that both Champions League games were on at the same time right. each night. This is the thing, I'm no longer used to having to choose between mm. matches. They should do some kind of goals show where you can watch all the goals as they go in. <laughs> yeah. Just going, going to yeah. float that one. I thought what right. was good that none of the none of the Champions League games were were cagey. Um, often the first legs can be quite quite cagey affairs, but they were all very entertaining. And I'd, I'd probably go so far as to say that three of the four ties already look settled pretty much, or at least you know there is a, a, a clear favourite in in three of the four ties, and the uh, the Juve Porto tie is perhaps slightly more finely balanced. Right. Okay. You've not met PSG before then, have you? <laughs> oh, I have. I, I must say, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next decade of debate about Mbappe, Haaland, who's best. Why can't we just enjoy having both? Uh, <laughs> that was a pretty strong element of the kind of midweek storyline, eh, those two? I'm very excited about it. First, because I, I can't handle the, the Messi-Ronaldo thing anymore. It's just like we, we, we all learn to appreciate both of them. So let's move on to the next one. And... Mm. Especially because uh, I was really thinking about this Mbappe Holland thing and, and thinking about the impact that the, the the national teams will have. Because, of course, Mbappe can win an, an Euro and uh, win another World Cup. But with Holland, as talented as the, the new Norwegian generation is, it's slightly more difficult, actually. And if you look at, again, Messi, Ronaldo, Messi never won the World Cup and it didn't make a difference, but it is Messi. So it's, it's a, a whole different case there. So, so how much impact will the international uh, career of these two, two young players have in which one will be best, which one will be discussing more? Uh, so, yeah, 
it's very interesting. There are a lot of elements in this in this discussion, in this Holland uh, Mbappe discussion. Duncan, you were among uh, a gaggle of people tweeting the Champions League goals since the start of last season. Messi and Ronaldo put together 15. Mbappe and Haaland put together 28. As you pointed out, change happens slowly, then all at once. And Tom... You have a swift rejoinder to anyone who's talking about Mbappé and <laughs> Haaland knocking Messi and Ronaldo off their perch that Robert Lewandowski has scored 85 goals in 79 games since the beginning of last season and won literally everything. It's actually better than that. Uh, it's Ooh. 85 goals in 76 games. Have I got it wrong on Twitter? Um, and yeah, I mean, clearly it looks, it feels like what we're witnessing is uh, a progressive changing of the guards. And I think the fact that both Mbappe and Haaland have produced these exceptional match-winning performances uh, in weeks where Messi and Ronaldo have both underperformed felt quite symbolic. Um, and, you know, you, you sense that the next decade will belong to those two players. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think we should overlook Robert Lewandowski much as France football has uh, has tried to suggest we should. He has been the best player in the world, I would say, for the last 12, 18 months. He's not, not the same kind of player as Messi and Ronaldo. He's not a once-in-a-generation talent. But what we've seen with Lewandowski is a player reaching his peak and hitting an, an absolutely extraordinary sustained run of form. You know, He's been scoring at Ronaldo-Messi levels for 12, 18 months, at a time when they haven't been... Um, and obviously he's been deprived of a Ballon d'Or, which I think most football fans would feel was was rightfully his. I mean, you know, in, not that it matters. It's an individual award in a in, in a team sport. And, you know, people get carried away about the importance of the Ballon d'Or, but it, it is uh, the, the award that we use to judge who is the game's uh, preeminent player. And you know, we're we're in the age of the the Ballon d'Or clause. You know, there are players with Ballon d'Or clauses in their contracts, and it, it feels. It does feel unfortunate that, that Lewandowski was, um, you know, was denied that honour at the end of a year when, as you say, you know, he won literally everything. Um, and yeah, I think when we come to when we come to look back on the end of the Messi Ronaldo era, it would be remiss of us not to remember this extraordinary and very sustained purple patch that, that Robert Lewandowski has been going through. I mean, on the flip side, you have to take into account his TikTok videos. So, you know, I think it <laughs> there is that. Out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there is that. That's a on a point. lighter note, uh, will this week's performances in some way bring to an end all those kind of newspaper stories about Paris Saint-Germain or Man City trying to uh, sign Leo Messi? W why would you spend that money on Leo Messi if you could use it to have Mbappé with a bigger contract or bring in Erling Haaland? Because it's still Leo Messi. As long as he's playing in this level, we'll, we'll always have this. Plus, uh, with Mbappé, I don't know, it just looks more like he will be moving on soon from PSG. We've been hearing since forever uh, about him going to Real Madrid and we saw the, all the gifts on the internet after the, after, uh, the Barcelona match uh, with uh, Florentino Perez uh, watching the game and holding his phone already. So, yeah, it's actually it's up to Florentino Perez uh, if we're going to see Mbappé uh, in Real Madrid, in PSG, or even Haaland, because there is the talk about Haaland uh, really fitting in well in Real Madrid and, uh, you know, Benzema is not getting any younger, so... Indeed. Well, let's get a little bit more uh, talk about Mbappé's future and much, much more as we move on to what is probably the biggest story midweek, Paris Saint-Germain's 4-1 win 
at the camp now. Now, last time these two teams met, remember, it sounded for French viewers like this. Whereas this time it was rather different. The famous uh, no, that's Paul Le Guin. Uh, he was on co-commentary for that game, 2017. Nice. Well, it was very much we this time round. Let's speak to Paris Saint-Germain's official number one full kit wearing supporter, Julien Laurent. Have you had many better nights as a PSG fan? <laughs> no, no, not many. I mean, you know, and for all the listeners who listen to uh, to Tuesday's show, that I was I was a bit worried because PSG had not played well at all coming into this game. That Pochettino was still finding his feet at the club. I'd only been there what forty two days, I think, and and played ten games, so no times to work on on maybe his methods. There was no Di Maria, there was no Neymar. And on the other hand, Barcelona looked looked much better than they were certainly when the draw was made. So I was a bit like, oh God. And and actually everything went even better than than I think a lot of us supporters could have thought, even even players. Certainly they had a plan, but to make Barca explode like this. I mean, no one had scored four goals this season against Barcelona, home or away. Juventus scored three in the group stages, but two of them were penalties, for example. So right. I, I can hear the, oh, but Barca were bad. Okay, but I think PSG made them that bad because they were so good. And I still think it was a hell of a performance. Right. And Barca took the lead, of course, with a penalty, but PSG didn't crumble. You were talking about team spirit on Tuesday. How, how much do you think of this performance was Pochettino? A lot, a lot of. I think a lot is down to him. From if we go on the team spirit first, quickly, yeah, he said to them the the three days before the game, the only way you can win there, and and if that's if Barca are their best as well, is to stay really compact and to stay together the whole game, to play with not much space between your lines, to really have that sort of team spirit, that cohesion in your in how you defend all together. And if you not have that, then you will explode. And they, they can easily score. Messi can score three goals against you in, in the space of, of a game. And then that's it. So certainly in the player's mind, it was like, whatever happens, we have to stay in this together, defend together, attack together, play together as a unit, which they really hasn't, haven't done in a long time. And, and then there was the, the sort of master plan that Pochettino put together on how to attack this Barca team, how to play Mozi Kane and, and Mbappe, uh, in the half spaces to to almost force the Barcelona fullbacks to play inside and leave all those channels to the PSG fullbacks, Florenzi and Kiozava, and then to find those players as we saw on the first goal and the third one. So everything that they worked on was perfect. Everything that Pochettino had planned was perfect. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for that win. Mm. Helps when you have Kylian Mbappé in your side. But then again, this is a player who hadn't scored in the Champions League for, what, a year uh, going into January, coming into this game, he, he effectively did a Messi on Messi. Yeah, you're right. He, he, as great as he was, this is not a very good season for him. The, the numbers are still pretty good and he, he scores quite regularly in the league. But he can do so much better, as we saw on Tuesday night. So even over him, there was a few question marks. Not on his ability, but certainly before the game, because there was no Neymar and, and Di Maria, it was... It was, okay, this is your turn now. You have to carry this team. You have to show that you can own a game like this, that you can deliver. 
and be the boss. But but what Pochettino was very clever in the discussions that he had with 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 Kylian was don't try to do this on your own. This, this is not going to work. You're not Messi or Neymar. You're not those kind of players. You're certainly super talented like them, but you're not. You, that's not what you do. If you want to have an impact on this game, you have to play with your team. The, the team would rely on you. But you can't do this on your own. You can't just get the ball and try to dribble past everyone like he does usually when Neymar is not there in the league, for example, which is completely counterproductive. And I thought on Tuesday night, he was as much at the service of the team than the team was at as his service in the sense that they, they played with so much unity all together that Mbappe was decisive in his goals, but all the things that he created and the, the Moise Kane chance he created, the corner that led to the Icardi header he created. So they, it was not just the goals. It was not just a game of, oh, he scored three and did nothing else. From first minute, when he went through and just missed that first touch slightly to the last minute, he was magnificent. And, and, and I think he realised that he had to play like this to have that kind of impact. And also, I think... Pochettino found a way of almost taking away from him all the defensive responsibilities that he could have had playing on the left-hand side like this in a 4-3-3. But the way Verratti played, the way Kurzawa played, and I guess to a certain extent Gay and, and Paredes in midfield almost took the side away from Kylian Mbappe of defending and then he can just focusing on, on creating damage all, all through the pitch. OK. George, sincerely, are you still a little bit nervous for the second leg? <laughs> I think I will watch Liverpool Leipzig and just not care about PSG Barcelona. I don't want to hear anything about it. I'm just hoping for the best. Surprise to hear from Julian Laurence this week. Uh, Tom, you'd like to talk about the real hero of PSG's performance, Marco Verratti. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Mauricio Pochettino deserves a lot of credit for um, the way that PSG beat Barcelona. And when he got the PSG job, I think the expectation was that the main changes he would bring would be sort of cultural changes and, and changes, you know, that, that would regard PSG's work rate and their intensity and things like that. But the most influential change he's made so far has been a fairly simple tactical change. He's moved Marco Verratti about 30 yards further up the pitch. Ever since Verratti arrived at PSG in summer of 2012, he's played as like a deep-lying midfielder, ordinarily in a midfield three. Since Pochettino came in, and particularly when Neymar hasn't been available, he's been playing as a number 10. And what that means is that he just gives PSG a foothold in the opposition half that they didn't have previously. Under Thomas Tuchel, what would happen quite a lot was Verratti would, would collect the ball from the goalkeeper, from the centre-backs, and he'd turn. And what he'd find was he'd have Neymar and increasingly Mbappe running towards him, asking for the ball to feet. And it made PSG very predictable and it made it hard for them to progress the ball you know, through the thirds up the pitch. I think one of the, the key uh, ideas behind moving Verratti up the pitch is to say to Mbappe in particular, and also Neymar, look, let us get the ball up to Verratti, allow him to be the launch pad, and then rather than picking up possession on the halfway line with all the opposition midfielders and defenders to get past, you can be running onto the ball 30 yards from goal, you know, doing your magic in the final third. And we've seen that particularly from Mbappe. And, and I think you know, that was one of the keys to the victory against Barcelona. The, the question now is... Can PSG still play like that when Neymar comes back into the team? Obviously, he missed the game at Barcelona through injury. He should be back around the time of the second leg. Doesn't seem to be a great need to rush him back, given the the, the way that the the tie stands after that first leg. But I think that going forward will be an issue that that Pochettino will have to resolve. Can 
can PSG sort of wean themselves off the, the Neymar dependence that has been the symbol of the past couple of years, play through Verratti in the way that they did at, at Camp Nou? Uh, because I think, you know, for one, Mbappe will, will definitely benefit from that. Hmm, interesting. Uh, we might actually be overreacting to this PSG win, given that Barcelona also shipped three goals at home to Juventus and, and, and of course, eight to Bayern Munich at the end of last season's Champions League campaign. I mean, that is an important caveat. Barcelona are terrible. And I think as a consequence, we perhaps shouldn't read too much into this result. I mean, the symbol of Mbappe scoring a hat-trick in his first game at Camp Nou, I mean, that, that, that holds true regardless of context. You know, that is a historic feat. But in terms of what it says about where PSG are, given the season Barcelona are having, I think we should perhaps hold back before we draw too many firm conclusions about it. I was actually surprised with uh, Barcelona's performance because they have been pretty good in La Liga for the past couple of months. But everything that they have been doing well in, in the Spanish league, they didn't show against PSG because they, they were more brave, they were more courageous, they were uh, quicker with the ball uh, in La Liga. And we didn't see this against PSG. And of course, Piquet is such an important player. You have all the experience and everything, but he hasn't played ever since November. I couldn't understand why you would start a player that came back from injury and that is more experienced against an attacking team that is obviously very quick. And then you have the picture in front of every newspaper of Piquet trying to get Mbappé. It wasn't necessary and it affected other areas of the pitch because uh, you had... Uh, Piquet and you had Dest and then uh, Barcelona only attacked on the left-hand side of the pitch and if you see uh, De Jong and Busquets, they don't want to leave the the defense exposed. So uh, Barcelona is not as aggressive as it can be when they have the ball. And I just couldn't understand what was the idea behind the starting eleven and and why they they started Piquet as as experienced and as a great uh, defender as he is. You know, I mean, it's rare that you get a football match that can be condensed into a single image. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that you know the PK shirt tag on on Mbappe was yeah a picture that spoke a thousand words. Literally, with the meme content that was produced immediately, the, fa- lots, the meme factory went memes. deep. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It felt like a meme that burnt itself out quite quickly as well. I mean, I I partook in that meme, but even by the time I went to bed, I'd had enough of it. Um, perhaps <laughs> this is you know just a consequence of. Of you know the, the, of the, yeah the sort of life cycle Speed of memes of, we're yeah. we're speeding towards a time when memes will exist for about twenty minutes and then they'll be dead. We'll move on to the accelerationism next accelerationism at its harshest. But just one thing on Messi, right? It's now assuming glasses don't go through, which I think is fairly safe to assume. Um, he won't have appeared in a European final since he was twenty-seven, and he is. I think the. The Haaland and Mbappe emergence or further emergence this week, you know, Ronaldo and Messi are very acutely aware of their legacy and their historical impact on the sport. And I think this will only kind of make Messi more determined to to go to a club where he thinks he can win uh, the Champions League for at least one more time. Because, you know, there's that famous thing in in music and film, isn't it? The 27 Club. Obviously, it's not it's not that bleak this time. But um, it is very much, for a player like Messi to, to last appear you know, that long ago in his career would be would be unworthy of him, I think. As you tweeted this week, Duncan, Joe Allen has appeared in a European final more recently than Lionel Messi. All right then. Well inspired, also he said by Mbappe's performance on Tuesday, Erling Haaland on Wednesday was in equally or perhaps even more scary form 
as he led Borussia Dortmund to a 3-2 victory away at Sevilla. Sevilla had actually taken the lead in this one before Modaud, with an absolute rocket, levelled it for the previously slumping Borussia Dortmund. And then Haaland took over and he looked, uh, Natalie, almost unplayable. I was just wondering how much impact the, the league has in the Champions League, especially in this round, because you have Dortmund struggling in the Bundesliga and Sevilla, they, they are fourth in La Liga with one game in hand, came from nine wins in a row. And we were talking about Barcelona PSG. PSG hasn't been good in Ligue 1. Barcelona uh, improved a lot in La Liga. And then you see Dortmund and, and Haaland making the performance of of... of I don't know. It's been a while since we haven't spoken about the, the this level of performance from Haaland, you know. And he was unplayable. And I think in many ways he was more unplayable than, than Mbappé. Because, I don't know, sometimes it seems like we forget how, how much strength uh, he puts on the match. Like when he gets the ball. It, it literally looks like he's unstoppable because not only he's quick, but he's he's big and he's strong and he has all this power that that he brings to 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 Dortmund's game. It's it's quite impressive. It's it's in a sense it's a little more impressive than Mbappe sometimes because it's just different characteristics. You know, right. Mbappe sometimes is just more skillful and 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 Holland is the power. He is kind of what you get if you were to have a mad scientist constructing the ultimate football destroyer in a, in a lab, which is possibly what happened. I don't know. Well, we've said it before that Roy Keane's um, on his father's knee um, in the Manchester derby could have implanted some sort of rogue DNA, and this is where it all comes from. I mean, I know that doesn't technically work on a timeline basis, but still, you never know. Right. <laughs> anyway, there you go. So 3-2... But three away goals for Dortmund, looking pretty good there for a place in the quarterfinals. Much to everyone's surprise, given their recent form. In Porto, meanwhile, Juventus conceded 61 seconds into the first half of their clash with Porto. Then, impressively, conceded even faster at the start of the second half. It's hard to put into words. This was the game I chose to watch, interestingly, on Wednesday night. And I was struggling to find words for how bad... Uh, unrecognisably bad Juventus were. Cristiano Ronaldo looked old. Uh, Juve looked like they'd either been on their medications or come off them, one of the two. (laughs) And uh, they were very, very confused. And the last 15 minutes kind of rescued it when um, Pirlo made one or two changes, including bringing on Morata, and and things simplified a bit, and they started putting in crosses. And and sure enough, uh, Chiesa then scored a, a pretty special goal, which possibly gives them the advantage with with the away goal, a 2-1 a result that now for Porto. But still, uh, it was quite shocking to see a Juve side whose most recent European result away was that 3-0 at uh, the Camp Nou performing like that. Mm. Oh, stat, Duncan, Chiesa, the first Juventus player other than Cristiano Ronaldo to score for the Bianconeri in the knockouts since Blaise Matuidi in April 2018. Well, just on Ronaldo... I mean, obviously, this the theme of this week's show is the passing of the torch a little bit. Um, he had more offsides than he did shots in this game. And I thought, well, that seems quite unusual. So I ha- had a look. It's the second time in the last four Champions League games that he's done it. And in the previous 177 Champions League appearances, he only did it once. So if you want a kind of little little sort of example of how his kind of influence is, is waning, that may be a little glimpse. Ronaldo, the offside years. Maybe that'll be his, his, his new jam. So do you have any kind of perspective on that in terms of how other international greats have fared 
uh, their ratios of offsides to, to shots? Well, I mean, it will vary by the style of play. I mean, obviously, Inzaghi yeah. would right. have been up, up there for his so whole career. you don't career. have his numbers, just to get a kind of frame of reference? Not not to hand. But I think what Ronaldo never, you know, even when he played as a as a more central, you know, target man later in his career, he, he was always still quite mobile. Right. Um, and last night he did look a bit laboured. There were lots of times where Juve had a free kick and he was stood offside and then he kind of just lumbered back just, you know, as the free kick was taken so that he wouldn't be offside. I don't know. He just looked not quite at the races possibly he was dizzy after getting knocked over by uh, Alexandro but uh, yes I mean he could have he could have had a he could have had a penalty at the end it's yeah what did you think conclusion oh. to the game uh, I mean you know you sort of seen him given I think it's the sort of thing that had the referee given it you know the VAR wouldn't have overruled it because right. there was clear contact and then Ronaldo probably scores that and he ends up being you know, Juventus' saviour again, so fine yeah. margins as ever. They didn't the deserve it. Just on that stat, by the way, impressive as it sounds, it's worth pointing out that Juve have gone out at this stage for the last two seasons, so it's essentially only the games with Leon last year and uh, Ajax the, the season before. Just a quick word on Porto, because we can talk about uh, Juventus' mistakes d- defensively, but let's give Porto the merits, because they, they looked so organized, so aware of what they, they needed to do to stop the attempts from Juventus. Ronaldo, on first half, we, we were talking about him, he couldn't get the ball for most of the match, especially during the first half. And when he did get the ball, he had like three defenders around him. So so Porto was very organized and Let's give them credit. They, they deserve it. And lovely to see Sergio Conceição bringing his son on in the final minutes as well. Uh, well, I enjoyed it anyway. Uh, the other game that took place midweek was on neutral ground in Budapest uh, on Tuesday when Liverpool woke up and did Leipzig 2-0. We'll talk about that next. Oh, mate, keep going. We're almost there. Oh, the legs have gone. Pressing is hard. The weather is so mentally fatigued. All right, lads. Already on the way down, are you? How was your view from the top? <laughs> Liverpool might have peaked under Klopp, but at Paddy Power, if things aren't going your way, we'll give you your money back as a free bet if one leg of your fourfold acre lets you down. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10. Min odds 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive. Exclude shop bets and enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. It's in plus. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Bill Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Forward by Curtis Jones, off goes Sadio Mane, and it's a mistake by Upamecano. Mane's in for two for Liverpool and gets another one for Liverpool. Well, it's turning into a dream night in the Champions League. 2-0 for Liverpool over Leipzig. Boy, did they need a game like that. This time the other team doing the defensive funny stuff. So it was a very good performance from Liverpool, uh, but but their performances, to be fair, they, they weren't as bad as their results before. Like we thought they 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 got over the, the bad moment before after the Spurs and West Ham matches. So so let's take it easy because it, it was a good performance, but we still need to need to see the consistency. But about the performance, the pressing actually was was especially good because we've been talking about the, the, the pressing so much during this season, this busy season. And we obviously can can point out Leipzig's defensive mistakes, but Liverpool was giving them really a hard time you know and, and the clean sheet was especially important for for Kabak's confidence for Alisson of course because we've been talking about Alisson for the past couple of weeks and it hasn't been good and uh, so 
the spirits are different in a knockout Champions League fixture as well. I think we have to take this into consideration. Let's see how they respond in the league, where they are far off City. You know, they they were uh, playing a knockout match uh, against uh, Leipzig. It's it's very different around the match. But uh, in terms of of uh, performance, uh, you had the pressing and you had uh, Salah in a very good night. Uh, you had the, the front three actually working really well. Firmino pressing as Firmino presses so it was exciting from uh, a Liverpool's perspective uh, in terms of the team looking a lot more confident right they benefited from mistakes but those mistakes came about because of Liverpool's own sudden intensity and Mo Salah you mentioned him only Lewandowski Tom has scored more goals than Mo Salah in all competitions this season Woof. and Liverpool never failed to go through a European tie after winning the first leg away from home so Crikey. there's that mm. Second leg of this one is going to be on the 10th of March, probably at Anfield, although I understand there is a slight question mark about uh, that. Before that, though, very much on Liverpool's home turf. This Sunday, it is the derby. Now, opponents Everton were also in action midweek in that Premier League game that was held over against Man City. And uh, lots of you sneakily tuned into this. You say sneakily, but it was broadcast on, you know... The, well, on the internet, essentially. All right, t- tell me all about Everton-Man City then. It was a good game. Um, Everton did okay for sort of 50 minutes. Um, Richarlison equalised once Phil Foden had deflected City into the lead. But second half, as, as it wore on, City just looked stronger and stronger. Riyad Mahrez was particularly good, scored a brilliant goal. You know, first time shot from the edge of the box, cowed in. And, I mean, yes, as we said last week, the you know, rumours of City's demise were, were greatly exaggerated. And that's 17 wins in a row now, which is an all-time, extends their all-time record run um, for any top-flight club in English football history. And So it's 12 in the Premier League, yeah? 12 straight in the Premier League. 12, yeah. The first team to win their opening 10 in the top flight in a calendar year as well. So that's, I mean, they're at that stage of a season where they're just racking up new, slightly obscure records every week. So, mm. Well, the guy who'd been... Certainly, the, the headline maker for the the recent run of, of wins have been Ilkay Gundogan, and he was out this time. But but look, they didn't miss a beat, and they've even got Kevin De Bruyne coming back in for the the final minutes. I mean, I think this is this is one of the sort of themes of City's season that you know Guardiola has landed upon this way of playing this quite innovative system where one of the fullbacks comes into midfield and the wide players stay. Sort of super wide and and the players at the tip of the attack exchange positions all very fluid and because the players have sort of got to grips with it so well it doesn't matter when players are absent so you know you looked at mm. you looked at the team that City put out last night not only they're missing Ilkay Gundogan who has been arguably their player of the season they're also missing Kevin De Bruyne who has been their most influential player of the past you know three four five years and they're missing Sergio Aguero, the club's greatest ever goal scorer. You've got Gabriel Jesus up front, who's, whose form has been, you know, sort of on and off, who hasn't played a great deal this season. And, you know, Everton are having a decent campaign. All right, their, their home form is, is pretty awful compared to their away form. But, it, it, you know, it was by no means a walkover. They managed to get themselves level Everton after going behind. But City just have so much confidence in the way they're playing that even missing these key players, they're still able to turn a difficult game like that into a procession. And um, yeah, it, it's hard to see what 
is going to stop them now. I mean, yes, they've now got the Champions League coming up. They've got other commitments. You know, that there is a danger that the squad gets stretched a little bit. But the fact that they they've found this way of playing, and I think that ultimately will be assuming that City go on and win the title. They're ten points clear now. You know, we assume that that is that will happen. I think that will be what it comes down to. That in this very peculiar season, go back to the beginning of the season, people were saying this is going to be the season of the counter-attackers. Look at Jose Mourinho's Tottenham. It's not a season for sophisticated tactics. There isn't a time to work on it. Guardiola turned that on his head. He's found this this way of playing and it's so successful. It doesn't even matter if half of his most important players are, are unavailable. So in this sense, I, I think this is the most Guardiola team of all the Man Cities we've seen in the past few seasons, in the past five seasons, because there, there is the team. They are not reliant at all in individualities because the way the team plays, the movements they need to make, the, the mentality is there always regardless of the player. And, and Guardiola must be enjoying this so much, really, because it's outstanding what is happening. Like, we were all about Gundogan, talking about Gundogan, and mm. nobody even questioned yesterday, oh... If Gundogan was was uh, playing against Everton, we, we couldn't even remember this, you know? And and then you see Kevin De Bruyne coming off the pitch when it's 3-1 three, three and you think, really? Are you serious? You know, people keep talking about how much money City spent in signings and it's completely understandable. But at the same time, we're not talking about individualities that much. We're talking about a team of players and they are good in picking players that fit into this philosophy, you know? Yeah, I mean... Firstly, I really want it to become known as Cancelo culture because I think that would be quite a good name for the for the development. And B, you're totally right, and I think it makes you wonder. The worst thing you could do to this team, I reckon, is add Leo Messi to it in the summer because I think that would <laughs> yeah. that would kind of ruin that whole approach. And you wonder whether that kind of moment has passed now. And it is like you're saying, it's an absolute triumph for Guardiola. It, the, all the things people said about him as you know, he he couldn't stay at a club and rebuild. He couldn't you know make do with what he's got. And yes, he has spent a lot on on players, but they're players like Riyad Mahrez who. You know, is is a really good player, but never gets the plaudits that. But well, he kind of did. Do. You remember when they they won the title at Leicester, and everyone was like, "Riyad Mahrez is the most amazing player." And what's going to happen when he disappears into? But my point is that then he was the big fish in a small pond alongside Jamie Vardy, and then he moves to City, and it takes him a while to get into the team. And he's never had like a spell like Gundogan has had recently, where it's been like Mahrez has been unplayable for, you know, six eight weeks. Yet right. he's still really consistent. City was 45 days without suffering a goal from open play. And the goal they suffered, it, it was almost by chance, the, the Richarlison goal. And again, and that's despite having changed their defence. Uh, you know, John Stones on the bench last night. Aymeric Laporte comes in, looked like he was being frozen out. He's now playing more and more. They can change the full-back. Sometimes it's uh, Walker, sometimes it's Zinchenko. Um, and, and they carry on. You know, cruising to victory, and just to make a, a wider point, and, and not to kick Liverpool again when they're down. But if you go back twelve months, Liverpool was streaking towards the title at this stage of the season twelve months ago. They'd only dropped two points. We were all talking about this historic season they were going to have. It was a historic season in the sense that it was their first league title in 30 years. And I'm sure most Liverpool fans are perfectly happy with that. But it looked like it was going to be even more. It looked like it was going to be the greatest season in the history of you know European football. And now with City cantering towards what will be a third title in four years, that Liverpool season, bereft of any records that sort of differentiated it from other seasons, apart from the fact that it was, you know, the first title for 30 years, starts to look a little bit like a, a red speck in this ocean of sky blue. What you're saying is this means less. 
Well, at the time, it felt like it was it was it was potentially the start of something, and already um, it, it looks like perhaps it, it wasn't. It was the start and the end. Well, City now ten points clear in this campaign. They play Arsenal this weekend uh, amid touching scenes uh, on the sideline of the Arteta Pep reunion. City have won nine of their last ten meetings with the Gunners. The only exception being last year's FA Cup semi-final. As for Everton, next up for them, it is the derby. Crikey. Last time these two teams met, I'm sure we all recall, it was the Pickford-Virgil van Dijk game. Yes. And the two teams, and Liverpool and Everton, came into the clash first and second in the league. This time around, Liverpool are sixth, two points off the top four. Everton are seventh, three points behind their neighbours, but with a game in hand. Having said that, Everton have now only won once in their last six in the Premier League, Natalie. Yeah, actually, the, the rescheduling of the City match was not so good for Everton, uh, considering momentum, because back uh, in late December, Everton was in a run of four wins in a row, including right. Chelsea, Leicester, so it was a very good momentum for them. They didn't have covered Lewin uh, against Man City, so we have to point this out. Richarlison played as a, a false nine, which he did already a few times in Everton, and especially in the national team, but it's, it's not his best, but it was a, a pretty good performance. Uh, and And regarding the i remember the the first leg the the Everton Liverpool because there was so much excitement around that Everton team because they were leading and and they 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 looked so fresh and they looked so different and I, i'm not sure if it was just one of those cases where we just got too excited with uh, a few changes that we saw uh, against Everton they, they couldn't keep that level of course but i think they're still pretty they are still pretty interesting. They are still, uh, they're going to give uh, Liverpool a run for their money for sure, even without covered Lewin, if that's the case. And Jordan Pickford was back. Uh, he wasn't uh, at his best, uh, I think. But yeah, a lot of question marks around him always, right? Right, absolutely. They haven't won at Anfield, as you probably know, since 1999. Hmm. Uh, City's victory robbing Everton of the momentum they would have had from their 2-0 defeat at home to Fulham in their previous match. Uh, What do you think? Do Do you see the Toffees with a chance of upsetting the Reds this weekend, Tom, Duncan? I mean, one of the curious things about this season is that because there aren't any fans in the grounds, we've been told that yeah, home advantage no longer counts for anything, that there's no difference fundamentally to playing at home to playing away. And we've seen that with, uh, you know, lots of teams uh, winning uh, away from home or more teams winning away from home than we would ordinarily expect. But despite that, there are teams whose away form is much better than their home form. So clearly for the players, there is a difference between playing in an empty stadium that is your own and playing in an empty stadium that is somebody else's. And Everton are one of those teams who, generally speaking, have done much better away from home. And in the past, pre-COVID, when teams struggled at home, you used to say, well, maybe it's because the, the home fans are getting on their backs. But that's obviously not the case now. So it's hard to explain why teams like Everton find it so difficult to, to play well at, at home. But some of their home performances have been dreadful. They lost at home to Newcastle a few weeks back. Um, they were absolutely terrible. But so the fact that this is at Anfield, that will lift that, that curious psychological burden that they currently have about playing in front of no Although, none of their own fans. Anfield did used to be their home ground, so maybe there's some hangover uh, from that. Yeah. It's the longest hangover of all time, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Huge game. This is not just for City rivalry, but also, of course, for the race for those top four places. Everton, as I mentioned, three points behind Liverpool, but with a game in hand. Let's have a word about Fulham, who did beat the Toffees convincingly last weekend, but were also in action midweek, creeping one point closer to safety with a 1-1 draw at Turf Mall. That's now six away games without defeat for Fulham, which is their joint best ever run in the Premier League. Duncan, I think you are our our Fulham true believer, yes? I think I might have pivoted to Fulham from from my poor old Sheffield United lads. Oh, OK, yeah. Right. But yeah, they, they did OK. I mean, a semi-fortuitous goal they scored, uh, Olerena off his chest. Um, and then what will pain Scott Parker is that they only led for 224 seconds. Um, and Burnley scored a... Actually, Barnes got a pure Ashley Barnes goal in that he got a good pass from Jay Rodriguez. He miscontrolled it, which basically um, opened up the goal and he was then able to tap it in. So, um, you know, I don't know if you've heard of a no-look goal. This was like a no-control finish or something. But, um, but yeah, I mean, if you look at the league table, if if Fulham had hung on on then, Mm. uh, they'd have only been four points behind Newcastle, um, which is... Given Newcastle's form is attainable, I would say. And I think, well, you know, Fulham have got a, a reasonable shout of, of staying up at this rate. Six points is the margin as it stands. Newcastle the target. Brighton are only a point further away. Newcastle, who lost on Monday at Stamford Bridge. This weekend sees the teams facing the following fixtures. Fulham will be hosting Sheffield United. Newcastle will visit Man United. While Brighton host Palace on Monday. Fulham, Sheffield United. Intriguingly, Tom... Fulham have the worst home attack in the division, only seven goals scored at Craven Cottage, while the Blades have the worst away attack in the division, only six goals scored away from Bramall Lane. Hmm. Well, this has been Fulham's big problem, and they're having this really curious season because for weeks now they've just been racking up draws um, and have really struggled to turn those draws into victories. Um, And then somewhat belatedly, they got that win away at Everton, last weekend with Josh Mazur, who's just arrived from Bordeaux, getting Mm. both goals. And they've sort of felt for some time now as if they were a regular goal scorer away from going on a decent run of form. Um, You know, of all the teams in the bottom three, they look the most likely to drag themselves out of it. Six points behind Newcastle and, you know, the teams below them have have already looked like they've been cut adrift. And I just wonder, it's a lot of pressure on Josh Mazur, but if he can... If he can keep scoring goals consistently, there's already a basis there. Fulham don't let many goals in. They've not been losing too many games. They just can't turn those draws into wins. And if they do, that might be the difference between going down and staying up. Like a man who's visited a Swedish furniture warehouse struggling to turn those draws into staying up. (laughs) (laughs) It's just one win in 13 matches for Fulham. So so they, they need to... We've been talking about Fulham's performances and, and they have been good at, at many parts of the season. But like Fulham's defense was completely open for uh, Ashley Barnes' goal. And, and they have a good pair of defenders in, in Anderson and, and Adarabioyo. But, uh, but the, the goal scoring part is just, you, you don't see much happening there at uh, I'm not sure. I feel for Fulham because uh, I like to watch them play, but I'm not sure if they they will manage to, you know, stay in the Premier League. Yeah. Six points is the margin. Time running out a little bit. Newcastle, though, this weekend, as I mentioned, at Old Trafford, they've only had one win there in 49 years. That was actually not that long ago. It was 2013 during that David Moyes season when everybody seemed to be getting their first win 
in 49 years at uh, at Man United. Uh, United at the moment have only had one victory in the last five Premier League matches, which was that 9-0 thrashing of Saints. Uh, the other team down there in the mix, uh, West Brom, they will be at Burnley, which is Dyche against Allardyce. That's all. Well, I was going to say football Allardyce versus football Allardyce, but I don't know if that will catch on. It's a dichotomy. Is it a dichotomy? Possibly. Hmm. Mm. Anyway, all right. So, well, delicate times, these, as uh, the James, weeks tick by. Yes, sorry. Natalie. No, not at no. all, please. <laughs> no, it's just that uh, I spoke to Cavani yesterday. Ah. So, yes, and, and he doesn't give many interviews. It was the first time that, that he actually gave an interview. And uh, it was very interesting because, well, he he has uh, a muscle problem, so we're not sure if he's playing Newcastle. But he uh, made a long case about the difference between the leagues because he played, of course, Italian League, French League, and now the Premier League. And, and actually, the things that he said about it shows a lot about his fighting spirit because he said that many people like to see the league uh, this uh, league better than the other the Premier League is so much better than the French one and he seemed almost offended by it because he said for me it's all about competing that, that the leagues have different characteristics but it's much more about what you put into each game and each team you play and, and that football is all about the effort you place so okay. that's the type of mentality that, that you have in Cavani and he's, he's a very simple guy you know he, he didn't go long for about his impact and all the praise that he's been having uh, regarding Ole but this spirit uh, is is very important for a team that that needs to uh, close a 10 point gap <laughs> from right. Manchester City. Yeah absolutely um, in person uh, Natalie does he smolder the same way that he does uh, on camera? He's a very striking looking man Edison Cavani with his cheekbones and his jaw and those locks especially uh, what, what's he like in person? It's funny because uh, he has this very strong presence. He's like a big guy, but he is—he has this very smooth tone, and he's so kind to everyone that it's—it's. Mm. It's, I was caught off guard the first time I interviewed him in a mm. mix zone because he—he's just very simple and and very kind. He's very kind. You wouldn't see. You wouldn't think that a, a guy with his presence would would be so. You know. Everybody was just impressed with him. I, I remember the, the the other couple of times that we spoke with him on on mix zones. I'm a big fan of of Cavani. You know, oh, nice. he's he's a great personality. Yeah, I mean, he's a very gentle soul, Cavani. Yes, um, he's very religious. He's big into nature. Loves his nature. Yes, yes loves he, the quiet he spoke life back in that. Uruguay. Yeah, he, he comes from Salto, which is uh, a city in Uruguay with uh, 150,000 people mm -hmm. living there and he's very countryside guy uh, always with his mate and he loves to talk about his country so yeah he's he's, he's a good guy I really like him excellent what's still to come on this edition of the totally football show uh, we'll be looking at another derby uh, this weekend west ham against spurs and loads of other things too but next up big news in bournemouth You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. That ticker tape running across the bottom of this podcast is talking all about Cherry Henry taking over at Bournemouth. Jason Tindall was sacked there. Of course, Jonathan Woodgate has been filling in. But the club, the Cherries, have identified the Montreal Impact manager, Thierry Henry, uh, previously a player, famously, of course, at various locations, as the man to take over. Tom, based on what we saw of Cherry in Monaco, which is very much the Bournemouth of the South, 
logic as you'll forever be bumping into Harry Redknapp there. How do you think uh, he might fare with the Cherries? I mean, from his time at, at Monaco, I wouldn't be especially optimistic. Uh, I mean, he, he flopped, basically. I mean, he came in at a very difficult time. Monaco was struggling. They had this incredible injury glut and he did what he could uh, to patch the team up with young players. And that some of those young players uh, have gone on to establish themselves in the first team. So it's not that he didn't have any sort of influence, but the feeling was that he hadn't fully made the transition from successful player to young coach. There was a, a quote from Alexander Golovin, Monaco's Russian midfielder, that, that Henri was, was always losing his rag in training when players couldn't pick things up quickly and he'd sort of storm onto the pitch and you know and then he'd challenge players to try and get the ball off him and and, and there have been a few <laughs> references to that subsequently but he still saw himself as Henri the player um I think there was who was it Monaco played someone in the Champions League and he was sort of being very sort of pally with some of the opposition players because there were guys he knew from his playing career and that that was the feeling so there was a difficult context um but you know taking the whole thing in its entirety that he didn't show much that suge- that suggested he is on track for a career as a, a leading coach. But that's we've seen that so many times, haven't we? I mean, it, on a on a lesser scale, I remember when Tony Adams became Wickham manager, and it was almost the same in the sense that he could spot players brilliantly. He actually signed some really good players because his football knowledge and his ability to see when a player was decent was was without question. But being able to communicate with the players, as you know. As someone who was used to the very best and playing with the best, it is quite hard to to sort of um, you know try and com- empathise with players who aren't as good as you were, and that is the job of a manager. Why do you think Bournemouth have uh, picked him ahead of the likes of, well, former Huddersfield boss David Wagner, John Terry, and Patrick Vieira? Apparently, the other names on their their list. But why Thierry Henry? Uh, I don't know because it's Terry Henry. Cause it's a it's a big name. But I mean, like the fact that they took the decision to sack um, Eddie Howe was a bit knee-jerk, wasn't it? Is that a fair reading of the situation? I think it was probably fair enough. I think Howe, I don't think it's a, you know, it's an issue with Howe so much as a, a longevity problem. He'd been there possibly too long and it did need a change. But yeah, this this idea that you just need to get a big name in and that will auto-inspire the players to better performances has been disproven so many times. I mean, maybe we'll all be wrong and Henri will, will go on to become one of the great managers, but, um, yeah, I'm not convinced so far. Right. Certainly interesting, though, isn't it? Keep across that. Not yet uh, by any means official, though, that he will be taking over. Uh, let's move on, then, uh, to things that definitely will be happening this weekend. Things like West Ham Spurs Sunday midday. Woof. Uh, West Ham currently two points above Liverpool after their Monday night win against Sheffield United. They are six points above Spurs. It is the derby of former Man United managers Moyes and Mourinho. Mourinho's first game in charge of Spurs was a 3-2 win in this fixture last season. And Spurs coming into this Thursday night's game against Wolfsburg have lost five of their six last six games in all competitions. Ooh. While their previous manager, of course, tears it up at the camp now. Interesting. You looking forward to this one? Yeah, actually, uh, who would have thought that West Ham at this point uh, would be so much more interesting to watch than than, than Spurs? Because and they have been more more exciting and more creative, and 
I don't know, if I were a Spurs fans, I'd be worried with all the talks around Kane and Son's future, because I, I know it's the extreme opposite, but I remember Guardiola saying that he started to like football as a kid because he liked having the ball. He liked the ball. He liked playing with the ball. And if you're a Spurs attacking player, as much as they have been more aggressive against City, for example, you don't get the ball because the the, the team wasn't good enough, because they got stuck in, in the same strategies and they, they're you know struggling to evolve from that. But it, it must be frustrating. And, and they want to win titles, of course. Um, but how much a League Cup will be enough to secure these players if they're not having the chance to show their best? If they, they basically don't have the ball to, to do so, you know, Son is already 28, Kane is 27, and they have ahead of them uh, a West Ham that's been just more interesting. They, they, they've been more entertaining, and they're, they're rightly so to, to be uh, on top on, on the table. I went to that uh, West Ham-Tottenham game last season uh, for Mourinho's first game as Spurs manager, and I was sort of talking to Spurs fans before the game about you know how they felt about it, and there was just a lot of uncertainty about whether... Mourinho was the right man to come in. Obviously, jarred very much in terms of his approach compared to Mauricio Pochettino. Um, and slightly surprisingly, so, so Spurs won 3-2. Uh, I think West Ham got a goal back towards the end, so it was a little bit nervy. And Spurs fans actually chanted his name at the final whistle, uh, which was surprising. But I think this has been sort of, you know, this has been a kind of background narrative uh, to Mourinho's tenure at Tottenham, whether the fans were ever going to really take to him. And I think, you know, that the deal at the beginning was that if he turned Spurs into a team that won things, everything else that comes with Mourinho would be acceptable. But obviously that is not what has happened so far. We shouldn't mm. forget that they're in the League Cup final, so that could they're in the League Cup final, right? I haven't imagined Yeah, that. they are, but it's against Man City, um, so, you know, it's like... So, yeah, but I, I, you sort of feel like that that deal is is sort of starting to fall apart. And, you know, the Spurs fans I follow on Twitter, right. a lot of them have already had enough of, of Mourinho. Of course, West Ham fans weren't very happy with David Moyes when he came back in, for certainly the, the, the second time, but astonishing stuff. Yeah, but this is where the kind of limits of fans being wedded to philosophies breaks apart a little bit. You know, if... Because if, West Ham fans have got a way of... They want to see their team play the West Ham way and all that stuff. But suddenly, if, if they're challenging for the Champions League position under David Moyes that's okay and it's kind of what Tom was saying there that if, if Spurs were challenging for the title I think the, you know the Spurs fans would kind of right. accept some of Mourinho's uh, methods a bit more but, but as West it Ham is, is, is as Natalie was saying they're not doing it in an unentertaining fashion and, and, and another 3-0 victory uh, this Monday against the Blades yeah they're not unentertaining but they're not playing in a way that if you go back to you know the West Ham teams even the ones with sort of Joe Cole and Rio Ferdinand and stuff that played a, that went down a certain sort of, yeah well exactly so it's like where do you you know so many fans have a, have a kind of um a commitment to a, a I don't philosophical do you think they approach do? I know that you know we collectively talk about fans want this no I think they do I think that, I, I would say Tottenham and West Ham are two of the clubs that overdo it and right. it's quite interesting this season for me to see West Ham fans go actually winning a little bit more direct but winning a lot and scoring goals is actually quite fun and we should okay. you know enjoy it what do Aston Villa and Leicester fans want from their clubs as they prepare for their clash, which is not strictly speaking a derby, is it? But it's certainly a Midlands, an all Midlands affair. That Sunday at two o'clock. Yeah, I was thinking about it. Is there a parallel to be made between Jack Grealish and James Madison? Because mm. I know they're different, but I, I find like 
really she's better on individual duels. Madison can be more strategic because has like an interesting vision of the game. Maybe there's more expectation around around Grealish in general in terms of him doing things to decide the match. And and in in Leicester you have the Jamie Vardy's and the Barnes and you know, but they're they're just two amazing players who bring very unique things for their teams. I can't disagree with you. Which one do you think is going to come out on top on Sunday? On the individual performance or in the, the collective uh, in the collective results? I guess in the collective, Leicester only had one defeat in their last 11. Villa lying down in eight. They have two games in hand, though. Win those and they'd be top four. Yeah, Villa's form of late has been patchy, hasn't it? They sort of went win-loss, 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 and they were winning games quite impressively, but then dropping points. Um, in matches where you wouldn't expect them to. You think about that that defeat at Burnley where they could have been about 3-0 up at half-time and end up losing 3-2. Lost at home to West Ham in what felt like a decent barometer of, of where those those clubs are in terms of, you know, sort of wanting to break into the big six and then and then drew away at, at Brighton last weekend. And Brighton, who've you know, actually tightened up quite a lot, so perhaps not such a bad result. But yeah, Leicester looked much more the finished article. Um uh, as you said, only one defeat in the last 11 league games. And another team who seemed to really excel playing away from home. So, yeah, I'd, I'd probably probably have Leicester as slight favourites for this one. Mm. Should be a good game, though. No? It's one of the, the, the fixtures that kind of leaps out at you from the, uh, the weekend's games. Uh, Saturday at 12.30, kicking off. Actually, no, because there's Friday. Friday night, it's... Uh, who is it play? Leeds Wolves play. Wolves-Leeds. Yeah, Wolves-Leeds. That's Friday night. And then you've got uh, Southampton-Chelsea early on... Saturday. Uh, the... a, a word on Wolves? Yeah, let's have lots of words on, on Wolves. Yeah, Wolves are in this weird season, but they, they come from a good run of results because they, they beat Southampton, they beat Arsenal, and they picked up a point against Leicester. And, and we always uh, talk about how fragile defensively Leeds are, but Wolves haven't been prolific of prompt you know they, they have only 25 goals the same number of goals as Newcastle they have less goals than Crystal Palace who has 27 but I've been enjoying Pedro Neto for a while now so so yeah it's something to to watch if, if Pedro Neto actually sets up a goal in this match he will be the first player younger than 21 to both score and assist uh, five Premier League goals in a season wow. since Rashford in seventeen eighteen. Okay. So yeah, so I, I think he's a very interesting player. He's exciting to watch. He certainly is. His goal uh, at the weekend was a, an absolute stunner. Who, who was it against? Against Wolves were playing uh, away at Southampton. Away at Southampton. Leeds haven't beaten Wolves in almost five years. Back then, it was a one nil victory at Molyneux in the Championship, a result that led to their manager, Wolves manager, being fired. Do you know who it was? Is it was it was it Walter Zenger? Incredibly enough, Walter Zenger was Wolves manager, which I'm still struggling to digest. And I'm sure we were we must have discussed this at length at, at the time when the former Azuri goalkeeping legend took over in the Midlands. But still, uh, yeah, that's a big thing. Players that you didn't remember played at a certain club, but managers who you'd forgotten had been in charge of other teams. Is that a thing for you, Duncan? I had forgotten that about Walter Zenger. I did once shelter from the rain outside his fan club in Corleone in Sicily. Really? Yeah. Um, went to Corleone because I thought it would be exciting and it's just a municipal town with not much going on. But, right. Um, but it does have a Walter Zenger fan club Walter if Zenger you're in town club. and you're looking for a yeah. place to support Walter Zenger. Yeah. 
You're it covers all those needs. <laughs> were, you, were you dressed as a 1950s mafia don, just to sort of complete the image on your little... Ironically, this time, no. I mean, as you know, that is my normal get-up. But, yeah, for, for the one day I didn't... And I thought Corleone was meant to be quite a nice kind of hilltop town. Never been there, it was OK, but it was raining quite heavily. And, ah, yeah, 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 that might have... Anyway, Walter Zenger, right. Uh, so there you go. Uh, were that, was that enough words on Wolves for you, Natalie? Or would you like some more? No, I think so. I think I'm good. I mean, it should be exciting, that one as well. Every game, as we know that Leeds are in, is entertaining. So that should be good, as should that Southampton-Chelsea clash lunchtime on Saturday. Uh, interesting clash of teams with very different momentum here. Chelsea, who racked up yet another win and clean sheet under this exciting Thomas Tuchel fellow on Monday at home to Newcastle. Southampton, who at the weekend got their sixth league defeat in a row. That's the worst run in their history. Can they turn it around against Chelsea? I mean, not... Not based on the, the form of the two teams. I mean, Tuchel's impact has been really impressive. One goal conceded in in the five league games that he's taken charge of so far. Four wins since that draw at home to Wolves in his first game, and he's now so confident in his methods that, yeah. that he was even even able to hand a clean sheet to Kepa Balaga against uh, against Newcastle last time out. So he must feel absolutely untouchable. Who looked good, didn't he, Kepa? Didn't have a huge amount to do. In fairness, we did make one sort of decent save, maybe a couple. Um, but yeah, and it's interesting that, I mean, often when managers come to a new club, they talk about how everyone's sort of talking, everyone's starting with a clean slate and he's going to give everyone an opportunity. And then very quickly, a sort of, you know, first 11 emerges and establishes itself. But Tuchel is constantly rotating. You know, he's looking at all the fullbacks. He's obviously looking at all the goalkeepers he's got. I, I suspect this probably won't last for, for too long. But despite that, and despite having introduced this new uh, sort of, what is it, three four two one system, Chelsea picking up results, not conceding goals, moving in the right direction. Even Timo Werner scoring goals. <laughs> it's been interesting to see the combinations, actually, uh, regarding Timo Werner uh, with Marcos Alonso and uh, on the other side, Hudson Odoi and, and Mason Mount. I think this is the type of thing that we can expect from, from Tuchel's teams, uh, the, the many changes that he will put into place and the combinations. It's, it's very uh, much a, a big part of, of his uh, work. And, and Southampton, it's been two months since they were third. They were third in the league and now they're 13th. They dropped 10 spots in the table. They dropped their confidence. Like, I, I, it's, you feel bad for them because it was such a nice story in, during this yeah. season, Southampton. Sh- should they be worried, do you think, Natalie? They're, they're 10 points clear still at the bottom three, but if they were to get a seventh straight defeat, I mean... They need to turn the corner. So... Uh, before they turn the corner in terms of confidence, uh, it's just that you watch Southampton and they are putting up a good performance. And if something wrong happens, it it, it looks like they, they, they can't recover anymore in the match. So they, they need to turn the corner in, in this sense. It's one of the old idioms of football, isn't it? The second 9-0 defeat is the one that really hampers you. <laughs> to um, lose 9-0 since... once may be regarded... Uh, yeah, Lady Windermere. Um, right. Just on just on Chelsea and what um, Tuchel has done. I mean, under Lampard, they were conceding three point three shots on target per game. Under Tuchel, that's gone down to one point eight. So you know, nearly halved, which is a you know great testimony to what a manager can do when he comes in and has a system and organises players. So, 
And they haven't had Thiago Silva because he, he picked up a muscle injury in the early February. I'm not sure if he's going to be back for this weekend. But yeah, he, he's been an important part of, of their defensive system. Also, the goal that Timo Werner scored to end his goal drought was a classic ending a goal drought kind of goal. <laughs> like falling over at the back post, ball bounces to you from a corner, sort of scuffs it towards goal. Goalkeeper almost claws it off the line. He's not even sure it's gone in, so we can't really celebrate. But, you know, they all count. And uh, wouldn't be a surprise to see him go on a run of goal scoring Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, could be bad news that for Saints. Uh, Monday, the round concludes with Brighton against Crystal Palace, which we'll talk about on Monday. Very shortly, Natalie will be telling us what Hernan Crespo's up to now. Hmm. First of all, though, let's get some odds from Lee Price of Paddy Power. Hello, listeners, and welcome to my clubhouse room. Aren't we all glad that we begged a mate for an invite to this wonderful app? Uh, just a quick side note for future Lee's benefit. I reserved the right to change the tone of my previous line from sarcastic to serious, just in case Clubhouse becomes a new TikTok or something. But anyway, today's subject for debate is best attacker in the world, Mbappe versus Haaland. Fire emoji, fire emoji. Just kidding. Twitter's cornered that market, hasn't it? Instead, I'm going to talk to you about some of the most loveliest strikers in the Premier League. On Friday night, we should see Pat Paddy Bamford lead the line for Leeds. He's 8-5 to five to score any time during that game. God, I'm good at odds. Saturday's early kickoff sees Danny Ings 6-4 to four to score for Southampton against Chelsea, which means it's more likely he does than Timo Werner scoring, and that is meant as a compliment, believe it or not. In the 3pm kickoff, remember them? It's my current Premier League bay, Mbai Diang, carrying West Brom's hopes at Burnley. He's 11-4 to four to score. And finally... It'd be remiss to talk about strikers without mentioning the one and only Harry Kane himself, who is the most likely man to score this weekend. Not by Paddy Power's numbers, you understand, but in his own head. He's priced at 7-5 to five to notch for Tottenham at West Ham. All the best. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only, terms and conditions apply, and when the fun stops, stop. Uh, this Sunday night, uh, make time for... A very special-looking Milan derby in Serie A. Uh, Inter, one point ahead of Milan at the top of the table. It's the first time those two teams have come into the derby, one and two in the league, for ten years. Mm. Now, a player who played and scored for both those teams, which is actually a pretty broad category because those the players go back and forth between Inter and Milan the whole time. Uh, it, it's shocking, really. You have some teams well they'll never cross that divide but in Milan it's like they all threw their keys in a bowl at the start of the season <laughs> and off they go anyway a player who scored and played for both those teams is Hernan Crespo and Natalie you've got exciting news about what Hernan who's a lovely chap is up to now yes he is the new manager of Sao Paulo very traditional big team from Brazil he he was just officially announced uh, yesterday um, and it's big news of course because everybody's very curious about uh, what he can do as a manager mm. he was uh, managing uh, Defensia and Justicia uh, a smaller team from from Argentina and they won the Copa Sulamericana that it's I, I don't know the equivalent of Europa League right. maybe so he <laughs> yeah, managed them they... to that title 
yes, he managed them to that title. Uh, before that, he he was a manager at Banfield. Uh, he didn't do so well there, and then he moved to Defense and Justicia, and and he had a, a very good run. And yes, James. No, I, sorry, I was. Uh, this was a question for after, but I I just I'm, okay. I've always been curious about the team name. Defensa and Justicia is it are they is it like a departmental works team or was that its origin no no seriously that's a, yeah that's a very good question I actually I, I never looked it up James right, really well, now, you keep yeah. talking and I'll just uh, I'll just have a quick okay look. Yeah. Okay, yes. So uh, for those who are wondering how Hernan Crespo is as a manager, he is a Bielsista, which means mm. that he is like a follower of Marcelo Bielsa. So he tries to apply uh, many of Bielsa's um, concepts into his game. He likes to have the ball, the teams that he's been coaching, they attack a lot. So he li likes to move the ball around a lot. And uh, Defense and Justicia, they, they also, they weren't very strong defensively, like most Marcelo Bielsa's teams. But uh, it's curious to see that he, he turned out to be a follower of Bielsa. Mm. So yeah, everybody's very excited about uh, having such a, a big name as Hernan Crespo, the, the fourth uh, biggest goal scorer in the Argentinian team. Who, who are the top three guys? Uh, well, Maradona would be one. No, what? he's not. Messi, yeah. Messi, Batistuta, Ortega. No, he's a he's a lot closer, guys. Aguero. Oh, Aguero. Yes. Right. Aguero. Maradona is number five. So I looked up Defensa y Justicia. Okay. Uh, the institution was founded on the 20th of March 1935 by a group of friends who wanted to form a local team. There are no sources explaining how the name was given to the club. That's <laughs> yeah, literally what it says. Yeah, sorry to disappoint you. Yes. Yeah. So. so they just went, well, I like defense. And the other guy said, I like justice. Yes. And, and that's a brilliant combination, don't yeah. you think? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. He's making his debut right. as a uh, Sao Paulo manager this weekend against Botafogo, who is already relegated. Mm. So, and and he's uh, managing Sao Paulo, who hasn't they haven't won a title ever since 2012, which is a huge run for a, a club like Sao Paulo. So there are big expectations around Hernan Crespo as a manager in Brazil, and people say that he looks a lot like. Uh, are you a friends fan? Like Matt LeBlanc, who played oh, yeah. Joey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's saying that. Really? He, he looks, looks like a that lot now. Like him. Yes. Because yes. he's beefed up yeah. a lot, hasn't he, Hernan Crespo? Yeah. I think he's chunkier than. I think he's chunkier Not than as much as Fernando Torres, but a bit, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now that's true. That's interesting. And the fact that he is an Argentina legend, will that be in any way a cause of friction for him? No, not at all. Actually, um, Brazil, they, they, they're going through this moment where they, they really value uh, foreign managers. Mm. So Portuguese managers and South American managers. And there, there are a lot of uh, questions around why Brazil can't produce uh, top managers. So actually, the Brazilian managers are a bit offended with that because uh, whenever a, a manager is sacked, everybody's always looking to, to other countries and right. never to, to the local local managers. But no, there, there isn't going. It's not going to be a problem. Absolutely. That's, that's interesting. So essentially, all the world is a, a, a village in, in Brazil when a, a manager, a Brazilian manager is sacked and they talk about foreign Foreign yeah. bosses coming in. There'll be the same complaints we get on Sky News about why can't they give it to a local lad who knows the league. <laughs> get some Brazilian lads in who know the league. I know. 
Yeah, crazy. In other Brazil-based BL sister coach news, uh, news coming out of France is that the next Marseille coach is going to be Jorge Sampaoli, who's currently in charge at Atletico Mineiro. Um, and he has been earmarked as the preferred successor to Andre Virchbotas, who, of course, uh, is in the process of extricating himself from a slightly messy situation at Marseille. He's still under contract, I think, Sampoli, but he is very much the number yeah. one candidate. Yeah, he's under contract. Atletico uh, Mineiro fans are very upset about it, actually, with the, with the rumours of, of him going to... But Marseille fans are very excited because, of course, they had Bielsa at Marseille a few years back and they absolutely loved him. So who better to come in and, and, and bring back the Bielsa glory days than his number one disciple. I mean, all these Bielsa followers, it must be terrifying for the Derby County security team to think there's a whole army of uh, Bielsa loyalists emerging in, in world football management. Terrifying times, Duncan. Anyway, uh, that is our look forward to this weekend and much, much more. We'll be back on Monday morning uh, reacting to all of the weekend's games. For now, though, it's many, many thanks to Tom, Duncan, to Natalie and producer Charlie and you, listener. Have a great weekend and hopefully we'll be catching up with you on Monday. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.